Hello folks, welcome back to Research in Review, the podcast where we discuss research papers with the scientists who wrote them. In this episode, we discuss how pathogens such as bacteria can influence changes in chromatin structure. Our guest today leads the Chromatin and Infection Laboratory at the Institut Pasteur in Paris. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Melanie Hammond. Pleasure so, to be here. Thank you very much. So could you start off by telling us a bit about where your interest in cell biology and infection came from? So I've always been interested in how things work and, mm-hmm. uh, and the molecular mechanisms of how things work. And so that's uh, why I was always stud- happy studying the sort of the cell biology mechanisms, either in bacteria or in the cell. For me, it just is all mechanisms, and I, that's what I enjoy. Fascinating. And um, one of the uh, two of the species that your lab uses is Streptococcus pneumoniae and Listeria. So, mm-hmm. uh, why why do you use these species, and how are they useful in your lab's research? So each, in the end, it's, they're basically models. Uh, they're models and each of them have interesting and different uh, advantages and characteristics. So Listeria is a model that is uh, well-characterized. It's an intracellular pathogen uh, and it's been well-studied for its manipulation of host cell processes. So. But a lot of things are already known. And uh, when I started the laboratory, I was interested sort of in changing models and going towards something uh, that was actually also causing a lot of diseases in the world that was understudied, which is the pneumococcus. Uh, And where it's interesting and different from Listeria is that it's uh, actually extracellular. So it lives on the outside of the cell, doesn't get into the cell but it lives in really close contact with the cell. So it's able to still manipulate it and have these conversations with it. Uh, But particularly interesting is that it comes in different flavors and uh, it can either be uh, colonizing in a homeostatic condition, meaning it doesn't cause disease, it's just in your nose, or it can cause disease. And it's that particular balance that we're interested in studying. And we can only do that with a bacterium that is both a colonizer and a virulent uh, pathogen. That, that's very interesting. So what, what are some of the things that differentiate the, the, the species, which does not, the non-invasive species with the invasive species? So that's not clear. And in fact, uh, that's one of the reasons why we're studying it. Uh, all that is known is, or most of what is known is just from, um, from uh, studies, from epidemiological studies. So we know that uh, the different uh, flavors are the different serotypes. So that is because of the capsule that's on the outside of the bacterium. So it's just a sugar and there's different kinds of sugar. And in fact, there are approximately a hundred different serotypes. Uh, and this is uh, how the bacteria are classified, but this is sort of a historical classification. And since then, they've found out that, in fact, the capsule is not everything and that there are different sequence types. So meaning that their genome is actually important also. Uh, so all that to say is that we don't really know why some are more invasive than others. 
uh, what we think in the laboratory and where we're interested in is we think that the host responses have a large impact on whether they stay colonizing or invade. Uh, and those study those um, responses have not been studied. So that's what we're looking at. That's really interesting. And I want to uh, sort of the term serotype. And even though it's quite an old, as you said, old way of classifying bacteria, is it still a useful one um, in modern day? Yes, it's still useful, it's still used, uh, and it's still a basis of the main vaccine that's used against pneumococcus. Uh, so um, the, the, the capsule does, uh, the reason why it's been used in the vaccine and why it is so important, it is, it is the main part of the bacteria that antibodies are raised against. So it's the main antigenic part of the bacteria, which means that it's the first thing that the body sees, and it's the first thing the body will raise antibodies against. However, uh, a lot of other factors are important. And in fact, it's not clear whether keeping the same capsule, but with a different sequence, that the response will be the same because you're putting the capsule in a different context, and that could be important as well. So it is still important, but I think that it uh, needs to be um, emphasized uh, or it needs to be complemented with uh, with different things. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I, I think it is really interesting to see that even like old ways of classing fine bacteria is still useful and especially in sort of the work that you're doing which is sort of on infection um, and the response to that. And your lab um, focuses um, on chromatin and could you briefly describe what chromatin is and why is it important for gene expression? Yes, so chromatin is a form of organization. The uh, eukaryotic uh, cell uh, genetic information. So the DNA in a eukaryotic cell, so in a mammalian cell, DNA is not just free floating in the nucleus. It's organized in a very architectured format in which DNA is wrapped around proteins, which are called histones. And then there is a three-dimensional structure that is formed uh, and that keeps the DNA organized, allows it to be dynamic, to be able to uh, express genes, to repair um, the genome if necessary, and divide and keep all of this organized. So what this means is that uh, chromatin is, um, the architecture of chromatin is very important for uh, guiding gene transcription because uh, in regions of the genome where the chromatin is very tightly packed, uh, genes will not be accessible for all of the regulatory factors that are allow transcription, and those genes will not be expressed. Genes that are in regions of the chromatin that are more open will be expressed. And so just by regulating the um, confirmation of chromatin, you can regulate the uh, expression of genes. And that's why... Um, we think bacteria are particularly uh, well adapted to target that particular uh, mechanism because it is a global mechanism used by cells and very important for the cellular response. That's really interesting. And uh, could you um, elaborate a bit on how the chromatin can be reorganized um, and uh, if there's like enzymes which are suited for uh, the different changes? Yes. So chromatin uh, is, is often remodeled. Uh, it's important for it to be remodeled because it has to stay dynamic. Uh, and so there are many ways in which this can happen. Um, there can be modifications that are directly 
put upon the DNA itself, uh, but there are also modifications that can be put on the uh, histones. And so these modifications will change the um, electrostatic forces and then will allow the structure to either open or close. So it's really just uh, interactions uh, and, and molecular uh, interactions. But by modifying these histone tails, uh, there are certain modifications that are important for opening and other modifications that are important for closing. So that's how things are, are regulated. Absolutely. And one of the enzymes um, that is involved in this process, which you talk about in the paper today, is uh, KDM6B. Um, so what's the role of this uh, enzyme and uh, what relationship does it have with uh, sort of the uh, intracellular immune response? And so that's a very uh, good question and I'm going to break it up into pieces because it's uh, actually a very complicated uh, question. So um, KDM6B is a histone demethylate, which is known to take off methylation uh, modifications off of histones. So it's very specific to specific residues on histones and it will only target those. Uh, where I say it's uh, complicated is because KDM60 is not well characterized for its role in infection. It's well characterized for its role in development. And so in development, it's very important. It's one of the most important uh, uh, moments in which chromatin needs to be perfectly organized so that a cell can um, acquire its features as it goes along differentiation and then maintain those features. So KDM6B is important in that particular process and that's been well documented. However, um, recent studies have shown that it is uh, closely and tightly regulated um, with a, an inflammatory cascade called the NF-kappa-B cascade. How exactly it is regulated by the inflammatory cascade is not exactly clear. Um, it is, so it's known that KDM6B is activated by inflammatory signals, so that has been shown. Uh, but uh, how itself it's important for immunology is not very well, uh, is not well known, and that's uh, one of the reasons why what we found was quite novel because it showed a function for KDM6B outside of development. Absolutely. And that, that's really interesting as well, because normally when we hear sort of, you know, chromatin remodeling, um, we tend to think of sort of its links to cancer and, like you said, development. So I think it's really interesting how the, it, it, like the paper we're going to go into shows that it's got such a wider involvement in different process in the cell, which is really fascinating. So going towards the paper itself, um, you compared uh, two serotypes um, that you called 6BST90 and Tiger 4. And why did you choose on these two uh, serotypes? Right. So the, the original hypothesis or the question that we were trying to answer was, are there any differences at the cellular level, the cell host response between two different serotypes of pneumococcus? So we wanted to take two serotypes that were the furthest apart from each other. Um, and so we chose these two serotypes because we observed a phenotype in mice when we compared the two, where one of the serotypes, the 6B, 
was completely avirulent. We could inject even 10 times more bacteria compared to the uh, tiger four strain and still not get any disease or death or anything. And on the other hand, we have the virulent tiger four, which is the uh, classical uh, laboratory model for streptococcus pneumoniae. And it was able to rapidly cause disease and death in the mouse. So they were completely different in their phenotype. And for us, that meant, okay, well, there must be something different also in the host response. So that's how we chose the two. Absolutely. And when, and going into sort of the results, uh, the first result you got was when you compared these two serotypes that we've spoken about, um, you tested it, um, uh, the, the outcomes of, the, of uh, infecting a live model um, with these two bacteria. So um, could you explain sort of what the sort of benefits and the challenges of using a in vivo model to test the immune response? So the, the benefits are obviously that uh, it's more physiologically relevant than using an in vitro model, mm -hmm. meaning tissue culture cells and uh, looking at tissue culture cells. Uh, the benefits, the reason why it's more physiological is obviously in the mouse, you have all of the immune cells and uh, everything else. You even have the microbiota and the natural uh, fauna or, uh, of the, the inside the respiratory tract, whereas in a dish, you only have the cells that you put in there. So uh, they're very two different, very different uh, models. They're very complementary because in the mouse, we can't get a lot of tissues and we can't do molecular studies. We can only do phenotypic studies, looking at disease progression and the number of bacteria, but we can't then go look in the cell and say, okay, what is the transcriptional response? Uh, what is the molecular mechanism? Is KDM6B relocalized into the nucleus, for instance? Uh, all of those questions we, uh, we can only do in the, in the dish. Mm -hmm. uh, so the ideal is to combine the two and to see that that's what you find in vitro. You can then find parallels in vivo to confirm that this is actually physiologically relevant. But there are advantages and disadvantages to both models. Yes, they have to be used in complement. Absolutely. And I guess one of the big challenges is finding that complement. Um, that, that was a bit ma massive challenge. Um, so one of the other, so when when you uh, did the test and you sort of started to analyze the results, one of the analyses you used was a transcriptome analysis. Um, mm -hmm. So could you uh, tell us a bit about what it is and uh, how is it useful in uh, looking at the uh, immune response to these uh, bacteria? So the transcriptional response is really asking what is the host cell, what are the genes that are activated or repressed in the host cell upon infection? So then you can test all sorts of different conditions. This is done in vitro. In vivo is much more complicated because obviously if you get an entire lung, you're going to be looking at many different cell types. And we were particularly interested in the response of epithelial cells, which we think are the first responders, the first ones to detect the bacterial presence because bacteria will come and sit on these epithelial cells. So the transcriptome uh, allows us to look at all of the genes uh, in the host cell that are expressed and then make categories. And we say, okay, so all of these genes are immune genes. Let's have a look at what ha what's happening in immune genes. But there's also a whole other 
sets of genes, you have metabolism, you have uh, all sorts of, uh, of other things that, that come up that you can look at. So we specifically looked at the immune response because that's what we were interested in. Absolutely. And um, it, like you said, um, with, with choosing the genes, do you have to be, do you have to be very, is there, is there the flexibility to, in these analysis to be able to test a wide range of genes or do you have to be very specific in the ones that you're looking at? So I would say both, depending <laughs> on, what, on the question you're asking. Uh, so if you just wanna know globally what the bacteria are doing, then you will look at every single gene and say, okay, which are the most activated, uh, which are the cascades that are the most differentially expressed. But if you're already interested in a particular cascade, uh, then it is important for you to, to focus, quote unquote, in the sense that um, uh, you don't want to be lost in too much, uh, in too much data. So mm -hmm. for our case, uh, we already had clues that we were interested in the NF-kappa B response. And so we sort of focus on that response, but taking a very wide view of it, meaning uh, there are genes that have been shown to be regulated by NF-kappa B, uh, but we took an even wider list of genes, uh, looking really, uh, compiling all of the genes that had a, a um, they have a uh, NF-kappa B binding site. That's when you sequence the gene, you know that there's NF-kappa B binding site. So maybe those genes haven't been shown to be regulated by NF-kappa B, but at least they have the potential to be because they have that particular binding site. Uh, so we took a very wide range of NF-kappa B uh, genes. So that's uh, yeah, what we, uh, how we choose. And did you find later on down the line that was a very useful um, thing to have done was to have gone, as you said, a more more wider view of all the NF-kappa B genes? Yes, so, so um, uh, we, the NF-kappa B cascade is very um, complex in the sense that there are there is a classical NF-kappa B and then there's a non-canonical and then you have all sorts of variations on the NF-kappa B theme. So we didn't want to restrict ourselves to the canonical NF-kappa B response. We wanted something a little wider. And that is what was interesting to us is in fact, when we look at the response of the 6B strain, which is the colonizing strain, it has a response that's not the canonical response. So it seems to be activated in NF-kappa B, but it's not activated in, it's in an inflammatory cascade. Uh, so it is a, a little different and we probably would not have seen it if we had just restricted to your, your basic IL-6, IL-8 genes, which are your classical NF-kappa B regulated genes. That's really interesting. Um, and uh, moving on to uh, another result that you got was um, when 6B, that the, sorry, that the 6B cellular response requires the protein P65 activation and the catalytically active KDM6B, which is the enzyme that we've mentioned earlier. So what, uh, what technique did you use to achieve the, 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 sorry, the inactivation of P65 and this KDM6B? So uh, in this paper, I don't think we did the inactivation of P65. Uh, we were just uh, just looking at it um, uh, at the 
Yeah, no, I don't. We didn't do a, an activation of P sixty five. We did, however, inactivate KDM six B. Right. Uh, and we did that with a chemical inhibitor. Uh, so there had been a chemical inhibitor that had been shown to be specific for KDM6B. Um, we tried many times to do that genetically by uh, knocking out the gene, but it's a, um, it's a very difficult gene to knock out. We never managed. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, uh, the chemical inhibitor was, was uh, what, we, uh, what we used and what was the best uh, for us. That's very interesting. And uh, um, and then moving on to the uh, other results. Uh, so you found that the KDM6B and the IL-11, uh, it shapes the cellular response. And w in the paper, you showed it into a bioplot um, and that was comparing the cells that were infected with the 6B uh, plus the inhibitor, which was the GSKJ14. And then also you showed cells infected with Tiger 4 and uninfected cells. Um, so uh, what is a bioplot and how is it useful to be able to compare uh, what we were looking at? Right. So I think you're referring to, we call them PCA plots, which are, uh, it's, uh, um, an, it's an acronym for Principal Component Analysis. Yeah. And very simply what it does is that it, it groups um, all of the all of the genes uh, into uh, different components, and it gives importance to each component. And basically, it says these two conditions: how close are they, or how different are they? And then it will actually just graph that on a on a plot. And so, on the plot, uh, what you can see is if two conditions are extremely similar, the points will overlap in a distribution. If they are further apart and if they are very different, then they will not, uh, they will be different and separated on the plot. And so that's what we see is that um, if we use the KDM6B inhibitor, that we now change the transcriptional profile of the host cell, which basically indicates that KDM6B is important in transcriptional regulation. And that's something that hadn't been been seen because, as I said earlier, KDM6B was mainly known for its role in development. And here we're showing that it is regulating transcription during infection. So that was why that was uh, interesting to us. Absolutely. Um, and going into the what you the uh, the results um, of. Uh, Trying to word the how it was. So to, to look into uh, some of the more results, which is more about the role of KDM6B um, in the cell, that you found that it's uh, important along with IL11 um, to uh, maintain uh, epithelial cell integrity. Um, so how were you able to measure uh, epithelial cell integrity? Mm. <clears throat> so the main way in which we, we measured epithelial cell integrity was using uh, what we call a, a tripan blue assay. And tripan mm -hmm. blue is a dye that is uh, normally, uh, when the, the cell membrane is intact, the dye stays on the outside, is not permeable, it doesn't go through the membrane. Uh, if you have uh, damage to the membrane, then the dye will get inside and your cell will stain blue. And so you can differentiate cells that have their membrane intact from cells that have their membrane damaged just by color coding between the, the 
clear and the blue cells. So that's what we did to measure membrane integrity in vitro. Interesting. And um, and at the time, did you feel did was this something that you tested because you felt it was important, or was it something that you chose to test because you think uh, because of uh, pneumococcus is uh, has a relationship to the uh, epithelium, it was important to check it. So this is where science is really cool. It's uh, we weren't directly going to look for that. It's mm -hmm. just something that we noticed. Mm -hmm. So we just noticed when we were doing our infections that, oh, these cells look a little bit more damaged or a little bit less healthy than the other ones. And so we thought, well, how could we evaluate that? And then we started digging a little deeper, but it's not something that we were expecting to see. It's just something that we observe. So it's sort of my uh, uh, moral of the day is to, when you're doing experiments, look at every single detail because you never know what's going to be important in the end, even if it's not something you were particularly looking at from the start. No, absolutely. And that also goes into sort of the, the next thing, which um, I can imagine is is somewhat related, is that the, the KDM6B and IL-11, they're essential for the containment of pneumococcus in vivo. Um, so were, with, the um, uh, with the results you got from the uh, cell epithelium, were you surprised um, that in vivo, it was sort of a similar similar thing? So um, we were surprised that the experiments that we had would work. That's what we were surprised. Uh, um, not that, not that uh, it happened in vivo, but that with the techniques that we were using, that we would be able to see it in vivo. Uh, so we knew that we had this dichotomy and we could, we could tell uh, that the 6B was staying in the upper respiratory tract, the tiger 4 was going deeper, and we could detect that by looking at where the colonies, where we were recovering colonies from infection. Um, so where we were uh, surprised is that uh, just adding the KDM6B inhibitor at the same time as when we uh, infected our mice, that that was sufficient to inhibit enough KDM6B in the host to actually give us a phenotype. Usually, uh, we thought that maybe we would have to go to KDM6B knockout mice to get that sort of phenotype, but the inhibitor was sufficient to see uh, the, the phenotype that we were basically seeing in vitro. Whether it's the exact same phenotype, that we are not sure because we would have to do some uh, histology staining to actually see the tissue to see if it was really damaged or not. All we could say is that it was important for confinement. Where I was particularly interested in where, uh, not interested, surprised, um, is with the IL-11. So the KDM6B um, was making the tiger, the 6B strain more virulent and getting out of the nose, going into the deeper tissues, and we were detecting it in now in the spleen with the inhibitor. Where one day my postdoc came and said, Let's try and flip the phenotype the other way and see if we can make the tiger four more confined in the nose and less dispersed, distributed in the, in the mouse. Um, and so we took one of the genes that is regulated by KDM6B, uh, which is a cytokine IL-11. 
And I told him, I said, you can try, but it'll never work. <laughs> and uh, he tried and it worked. And so it was, uh, yes, um, again, uh, a lot of things you just have to try to see if it works. Um, and I'm sure there are many other components that are important for regulating this process. And these are not the only ones, but uh, they were at least sufficient for us to see the, the phenotype, which uh, was a surprising yes, but comforting in that our hypothesis was correct. Absolutely. And that that's, uh, and I think the, the what you were talking about IL-11 is really fascinating because I think it, it, it just goes to show, I think, how sort of bacteria are quite flexible and you would think that, you know, they kind of, they can only, they, they stay as, um, they can, they, they sort of stay virulent, but then if you add something else into it, it kind of changes the game and makes them less virulent, which is really fascinating. Right. I um, think it's, that you could definitely see them as a, it's, it's, for me, everything is, is dependent on energy, right? So you have mm -hmm. to think of a, of water running down the stream and it's just gonna go where there's the least uh, barrier, the least retention, and it's just gonna flow. And the same with bacteria. Uh, I don't think that they're meant to cause us harm. I don't think that, they're, that they really want to kill us. It's just what they're doing to maintain their lifestyle and to allow them to keep going with the least amount of energy that they're putting into it with the best return. And so with these bacteria, uh, the tiger four, I don't know if it's actually meant to go deeper in the tissues, but if all of a sudden one of the virulence factors opens up the epithelium, then it's just going to flow in. And then you block the epithelium and it's just going to stay where it is and it's fine there too. It's just maybe causing a little bit more energy, but it's still fine growing there. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good way to sort of think of bacterial virulence because a lot of the a lot of virulent traits of bacteria are usually just sort of to usually hide from the immune system even though some of them do cause us damage i think it's just intended to kind of let trying to avoid it um like for example it like, like causing um uh, for example, um, I think it's special protein A, which allows it to bind to the FC region of antibodies, is mainly so it can, it doesn't really want to engage the immune system, it just wants to get on with its life, and the only way it can do that is by hiding that way, which is a really exactly. good way. Exactly, 